Hello, I'm Jad Isber, one of the co-presidents of the Entrepreneurship Club at Harvard Business School. I'm incredibly excited to be welcoming Eric Paley to the podcast today. Eric is a managing partner at the Founder Collective and is based out of Boston. He's known for investments in a number of companies, including Uber, Opower, Hotel Tonight and others. But he's also an incredibly thoughtful venture capitalist. Um, and if you're interested in VC, uh, the Founder Collective is looking for an MBA associate to source deal opportunities, attend events, drive diligence efforts, and meet with prospective companies. Um, they're looking for someone ASAP. And if you're interested, submit a resume and cover letter to bostonops at foundercollective.com and check out their site for more information. Let's get started. All right. So um, I know you went to HBS. Yep. So wait, what section were you in? I was section E section in e. 2003. Okay. It's a good section, I think. I, you know, it's uh, that year was a good section. I don't know how it is every year. Yeah. How, how would your section mates describe you like at the time you were at HBS? Um, probably as pretty serious, uh, pretty folks in entrepreneurship at a time where most people really weren't. It was sort of the end of the doc, you know, it was, po- it was post the dot com bust. And so the joke back then was B2B meant back to banking and B2C meant back to consulting. Uh, and yet I was still very serious about starting companies. And I think in my section, there were only a couple of us that uh, through school intended to start something when they graduated. Um, so it was, a pretty, it was a pretty small group of people who were interested in the entrepreneurship direction, which I, I know has changed a lot. But back then it was, uh, it was just a tough time for entrepreneurs. Yeah. And like, I think as someone who was interested in entrepreneurship back in the day, like how did you split your time at HBS? Yeah. So they say it's like one of, two of social, academic, professional. How did you split your time? Yeah, I probably was a little less social than some other people, but I, I did get some of that in. Um, I, my first year, I was still working with the company that I'd founded before school and tried to spend a bunch of time helping them. Uh, so that sort of, that was actually like a good outlet for learning uh, sort of frameworks and concepts and then thinking about them as they applied to something I was trying to actively help. Um, and then the second year, I spent the entire second year with my classmate, Micah Rosenblum, um, working on what would become Bronte's Technologies, uh, which uh, was the company we founded after school. So we spent uh, every class project we did was some different vector of looking at Bronte's. And I remember one professor saying, you know, you can't do the same project for two classes and thinking, why would I ever want to do the same project for two classes? I've got so much ground I need to cover to actually understand the business and the market and where we're trying to go. There would be no reason I would, I, you know, I wasn't trying to get away with something. I was actually trying to, you know, use HBS as sort of the best place to do customer development across various different aspects of what we were trying to do. And so was Bronte Technology uh, the company that you founded alongside MIT students, or was it the research that you were trying to... Yeah, it, well, it started more, uh, more broadly as an investigation of different market opportunities you might want to go after. And then we met a professor at MIT and a research scientist and two grad students. Uh, and when I say we, that was me, me and Mike Rosenblum together uh, met that group. So it was sort of six of us. Um, that really started an exploration of trying to figure out what to do with some uh, early academic innovation around 3D imaging. And the question was, okay, well, what do you 
you know, okay, what do you do with this? Like, how is it commercially interesting? We actually looked at 40 applications for the technology, spent a lot of time going down a road that we ultimately didn't pursue. We even talked to venture capitalists about it, tries to raise money, uh, looking at industrial inspection uh, as an application before we uh, focused on the application of that I think most of us thought was the least interesting when we started. Um, but over time, it became very clear that it was quite, quite interesting. And that direction was? 3D imaging the mouth to replace the dental okay. impression. And the real premise there, and I think one of the reasons we missed it at the beginning was, everybody thought it was kind of an interesting idea, but that it was more for patients, that patient comfort was the main reason why you wouldn't, why you'd want to replace the dental impression. And I think we missed the industry perspective. And we didn't think at the end of the day, dentists would spend a lot of money just to make patients a little more comfortable. So we, we kind of missed the industry perspective on it, which ultimately came through a bunch of work that we did, which was that dentist time was the most valuable commodity in the industry. Mm -hmm. um, it's where all the money is really made. And every unit of production in dentistry is a completely customized unit of, of production. So I mean crowns, bridges, implants, ultimately orthodontics, 100% customized to the uh, customer, to the end user. And uh, it was, I've been saying this now for almost 20 years, but I think it's the largest remaining cottage industry in the world where every unit of production is completely one-off and produced by hand by an artisan. Uh, and over the last 10 years, 15 years, CAD CAM, right, so computer-aided design and manufacturing has been coming into the industry to try to enable mass customization. Mm -hmm. And our belief at the time was the key enabler of that was the input. If you didn't have a digital input, it was really hard to get to a good digital output. Mm -hmm. So we believed if you could build that digital input, you could tip the whole industry towards mass customization. I think in one sense we were right. Uh, I think uh, in that it really wasn't missing piece. In another sense, we were very wrong. It wasn't like the industry tipped overnight. Um, it's been a, lo a, sl a long and steady climb in the industry, which I've been out of now for quite some years. Right. Um, but I think the insight that that was a missing piece was very real. The speed at which it would happen was challenging. Yeah, no, that's, that's super exciting. Um, so you, you managed to sort of cross the river and connect with people at MIT, and that's something that a lot of HBS students try to do. Um, what were like the things that worked for you when, when, for, for you to do that? Well, I lived in Harvard Square, so I crossed the river every single day. Okay. Um, but uh, I think the harder part is um, building multidisciplinary teams is hard, right? Because people come from, you know, the virtue of them is people come from different backgrounds, and that's absolutely essential to building value. Um, the hard part about that is people come from different backgrounds, so they don't necessarily see the world the same way. Uh, I remember the MIT team choosing to work with us after meeting with a bunch of different MBAs mm -hmm. and at first feeling quite commoditized by it, like, you know, making the argument, look, not all MBAs are the same. Mike and I had both founded companies before school. We had a, this wasn't just a consulting project for us, but they sent us this email saying they chose to work for, with us, um, but they weren't really sure they liked us. Mm -hmm. uh, they were, they were like, we, we're not sure we like you or that, um, we, we see the world the same way you do, but we think you could be very helpful to us. So we're going to experiment with working together. And by the time the year was coming to an end and we had to make a decision about whether we're really starting a company, um, the tone had changed to, uh, you're going to do this with us, right? Because if you don't, it's not going to happen. So I think we had transformed their perspective from at the beginning, we think you can help us, but we're not sure we want to work with you, to... Ultimately, um, this will never happen if you guys don't agree to do this with us. So 
uh, we hope you're going to do this. And I think we were still a little on the fence uh, for a whole bunch of reasons toward the end of the year, largely, I think, because we hadn't found the right application yet. We're still very focused on industrial inspection. Um, and I think that created a lot of questions for us. But we both decided at graduation we were going to focus on this. Uh, a little unclear um, for how long, but uh, we we're going to focus on this and try to build a company. Um, but I think building that relationship with the MIT team was, was of course, critical. Building trust in both directions. Um, and there, were lots of, there was lots of drama to that along the way. But ultimately, the research scientist joined the company full-time and became our chief scientist. Um, the professor joined the board of the company and, and was part-time working with us in his uh, day a week of consulting. Um, and we, we built a really great team uh, in support of all of our efforts yeah. uh, over those coming years. And, and how did that work specifically around like equity and licensing? Did you license the technology from them? We licensed technology from MIT, so okay. we had to work with the licensing office. Right. You know, the principal investigators being the professor and the, um, and the research scientist, mm. they were on our side of the negotiations. So, you know, they, they wanted to see the license get... Um, transferred to Brontes because um, they were co-founders. And yeah, equity negotiations are really tough. And it's really tough partially because it's hard to ignore the contributions that have been made to date. Right. So, you know, Mike and I were new. Like, we had just started working on this mm-hmm. nine months before this negotiation started, or maybe it was even less than that. Um, it was probably six months before the, the equity negotiation started. Yeah. Um, and these guys have been working on it and research for years. Yeah. But also MIT was being compensated for that, and they were getting part of that through the institution. So in a sense, we were compensating completely through the license for the work that had been done. Right. Um, but it was very fair. They viewed us as very new and unclear. And I think one of the ways that gets dealt with is not just in the division of equity, but founders should always have vesting. And um, if they don't live up to their contributions, if uh, I was the founding CEO of the company and nine months later it was absolutely clear I was doing a terrible job, yeah. I should invest, right, any more than the work I did, right? Uh, and so I think that's one of the ways you deal with that beyond just the division of the equity, which is obviously also very challenging. Yeah, for sure. One and they were getting opinions of people that, you know, uh, most of the equity should be going to them. And we were getting opinions of people that, you know, look, if you're not joining the company, you're not really taking risk. And um, we're leading the company, so there needs to be enough equity for that. And it's just, um, it's, it is definitely hard to pin down what the right numbers are. Yeah. And definitely led to a lot of strain and tension. Um, you know, one thing that I noticed from when you said not all MBAs are the same. Um, and, uh, I mean, Harvard MBAs are all exceptional. No, <laughs> I would agree. Um, but that, that reminds me of like kind of how Founders Collective differentiates. Not all VCs are the same. Yeah. And uh, you position yourselves as very much founders first. Um, could you speak to that? Like, how do you come, how do you try to differentiate when, in the face of entrepreneurs who have many options and can work with anyone? It seems like it's a very similar problem to the one you face with the M- MIT team. So... It's hard to talk about that without telling the story of David Frankel. So let, let's start there. I had three VCs in my company, and they were good VCs, and they were good to work with, and people have stayed friends through the years. But David was my angel investor. He invested in us before anyone else would. And uh, he was a classmate at Harvard Business School. He was actually a Section E classmate, you know, a Section Mate. Yeah. Um, Micah was Section F. He was the one we did uh, negotiations with. 
Uh, or I don't know if you had today. You still have activities with the section next door, but we we had several classes where we'd cross over. Yeah. Um, and Dave wrote us a check before anyone else. He truly was an angel, like not just you know in the current term of angel. Like he was an angel in that like he made it possible for us to start a company. And it was interesting through the life cycle of Brontes and the time I was operating it prior to 3M acquiring us, there was no question I was way more aligned to David than I was to my VCs. And it wasn't that my VCs weren't founder friendly, although I think people were less founder friendly back then than they are today. But I think people really confuse friendly with alignment. Mm -hmm. Friendly is like, um, you know, at the end of the day, am I trying to take advantage of you or not? Um, Do I care at all whether you disagree with me uh, as the founder of the company? I think that's founder friendly. I actually think it's kind of a thin concept. It's like Mm -hmm. uh, anybody who's a reasonably kind venture capitalist Mm -hmm. who cares about people um, is going to present themselves as founder friendly. And the fact that things are more founder friendly today than they were back then is totally a positive thing and that VCs in a sense get somewhat more rewarded or value the notion of being more founder friendly is good. But I think alignment is very different than friendly in the sense that uh, hopefully you're also friendly, but, but the alignment side of it is how do you craft the institution in a way that minimizes friction, minimizes disconnect, minimizes misalignment, and actually puts you on the same side of the table as much as possible with the founder. And that's what we had from Dave. And the question was why? What was it about Dave? And it wasn't just that he's a really great guy and he wanted us to win and was super supportive. Those things count. Those things matter. But there was something else about Dave, which was he was 100% betting on us. So we were innocent until proven guilty. And I would say with our VCs, we were a little bit of guilty until proven innocent. It was, yeah, we're backing you guys, but let's see whether or not you should really be running the company. For Dave, it was... We're, I'm only doing this because I want to back you. So that was one factor. Second factor was he had been a founder. Some of my VCs had never been. Now, that didn't mean they weren't great VCs or weren't valuable to the company. But when I found myself as a founder disagreeing with those VCs and at times feeling like they were being a little heavy-handed, the fact that um, they had some of them had not actually been in my shoes made me think, well, they just don't know. And the value of Dave was when he'd say something I disagreed with, he had been in my shoes. So I knew that he, he had been in that seat. He had understood it. So there was an empathy and a value to that. And then the biggest thing, which may be a very subtle inside baseball factor, is Dave was not a life cycle investor. He was not investing so that he could invest in future rounds. Mm-hmm. We thought back then that life cycle investors were a huge positive for the entrepreneur. It's a completely bad bill of goods. It's fiction. And the reason it's fiction is somebody always having a free option to invest in your company but no obligation has effectively purchased that option at some level. Whether they got it for free or they paid for it, they own that option. At whose cost? It's got to be at somebody's cost. If they got some asset, right? If you study finance at Harvard Business School, you understand if you have a call option right, on something, um, somebody... somebody created that, like it actually that option costs somebody something. And the truth is it comes from the entrepreneur. That option comes from the entrepreneur. It's not talked about in our industry widely, but you know, we back then thought of parata rights as somehow helpful to us. People who'd want to invest over time as helpful to us. It, it couldn't be further from the truth. If you need money from your investors, 
they don't need any special rights. You know, if they if they want to be supportive of you, you ask them for capital, and hopefully they will support you. Mm-hmm. That's not what parata rights are. Parata rights are the right to invest in your company when you don't need my money. Mm-hmm. So the problem becomes the investor is always a net buyer. You are always a net seller, and that's friction. Mm-hmm. And it creates this game, this whole inside game of what happens between you and the investor when truly you're not on the same side of the table. So let me put it another way. If you had a co-founder who you had to renegotiate with every year, you wouldn't feel aligned with that co-founder, right? um, What you really want with your co-founder is to cut a deal once and put it in a box and never think about it again and just be aligned towards building the best business you can. And that's what Dave was for us. And so when we started Founder Collective, we said, let's try to build the most aligned fund for founders at the seed stage. So it's not just empathy and the fact that everyone here has been a founder. It's not just trying to be friendly and supporting the founder's interests. And it's not just only backing the founder because we want that founder to see the company all the way through to success. All those things matter. But it's also that we are not trying to be a life cycle investor. We are not a net buyer at every round where, they are net sell- where they're a net seller, meaning we dilute alongside the founder. Yeah. So we can have really good conversations around what is the best way to finance the company that isn't specifically about my interests or your interests. It's about our collective interests, right? When we do documents at the beginning, we know that future rounds are going to look at those documents and try to potentially change them or utilize them in some way. So if we don't actually set up documents that are very aligned to the founder at the beginning, we know that those documents will be used against us as an early investor who is very aligned to that founder Mm -hmm. over time. So we have a very good reason to make sure that we are setting up the documents, the terms of the agreement in a way that's very good for the founder. Yeah. So we've really taken this alignment to, a, um, to a, an ethos about who we are, how we work with founders, what matters most to us. And we acid test it every day. If you sat in our weekly team meetings, things come up that will be in our interest. And somebody in the room will always say, but is that really aligned to how we want to work with the founder? Mm-hmm. And, and, and sometimes... It is aligned to the founder, but not in a way that's going to be iteratively true over time. So we say, okay, well, then that, that on a long view is actually not aligned. So we shouldn't do that. So it's really become our acid test for everything we do. That, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense um, and really, I think, differentiates you guys. But how does that then translate into how you assess companies to invest in? Do you feel like that kind of pressures you to scrutinize companies more and invest in less companies because you really want to be founder aligned? Well, we're very active venture funds. So we've invested in just about 300 companies over our 10 years. Today we do a little slower pace than that. We end up averaging, let's say, about 20 companies a year. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's still extremely active. So what I'd say is um, the way it changes things for us is not in the level of activity. It's much more around... um, and part of it is we're seed investors, so you, you only have so much traction in the business at the stage we invest anyway. Yeah. But it really is around how much do we believe in this founder? Because the whole reason we're doing this is to be aligned with them over time. You know, I'm on a board of a company that I've been on the board of for nine years. Yeah. Um, we're tiny investors. It would be very difficult for it ever to really move the dial for our fund, partially because things have gone very well and with other companies. But I'm there because... Um, there's a role for me to play and it's unclear to me that the rest of the discussion is as um, protective and supportive of the founders as the way I approach the discussion. Yeah. 
And so numerous times over recent years, we've talked about me leaving the board and I just think there's a role I need to play. And so I'm still there, right? And so the main question is, am I backing people that I feel really great about putting that level of support behind through the years? And I've been really lucky because most of the people we've backed, I mean, there definitely have been people through the years who have disappointed us, not in the success or failure of their business. That's not how we judge. Um, obviously it matters, but that's not how we judge. We've incredible relationships with people whose companies did not go uh, uh, where we all dreamed. Yeah. Um, but in their actions uh, and the, maybe the integrity, the intellectual honesty with which they pursued a lot of their decisions. Yeah. So yeah, for sure we have some of those cases, but they're incredibly in the minority. I mean, I, I just think we have been so unbelievably fortunate to um, choose people to work with at the beginning that really are wonderful people that um, have been just a, truly a delight to support. Yeah. Um, and in terms of like kind of the intu- intuitions that lead you to believe that someone is going to be a good founder and someone that you want to work with, like what are specific behaviors you try to look out for or key questions you ask to kind of decipher whether that's someone that you want to back? I think there's sort of three things. Um, I'd start with it's inspiring to spend time with the person, mm-hmm. right? Like when, when they, and not because they're waving their hands like crazy, telling tall tales, but that, you know, they're, they're driven around solving a problem that you can just see, you know, th- they really care about the problem and they really are obsessed with solving it and it's inspiring. I'd say the second thing is they're extremely intellectually honest. So one of the things you often see is I find a lot of other venture capitalists will send somebody in to syndicate with us that in theory is inspiring, but they're inspiring because their heads up are in the clouds and they literally can't deal with what's on the ground. So they're, they're not so intellectually honest about what they're learning, what they're seeing. Um, and we don't get inspired by that. Right. And that leads to sort of the third thing, which is really a derivative of these other two combined, which is they really want to talk about the hardest problems of their business. They're not trying to only talk about the easy stuff or the really simple stuff or the really positive stuff. They're not pointing to a single data point of evidence and going, see, this is going to be amazing. They're much more interested in talking about what's hard about their business. And the reason is, if you're thinking so intensely about solving a problem, really what you care about is thinking about the hard parts of solving that problem. You don't just want to be Pollyanna or rose-colored glasses about it, right? You're way out ahead of anyone else you're ta- you know, you'd meet with about what's hard and how are you thinking about the hard parts of that problem. And I think being willing to, this is a real key part to the intellectual honesty, but being able to really uh, acknowledge what's hard, acknowledge that you don't truly know the answer yet, um, but bring a lot of depth to how you're thinking about it. That's, that's the pursuit, right? That's the thing that gets us inspired, right? And so, you know, these things are all very connected, but um, inspiration, intellectual honesty, and focusing on the hard parts, I'd say are the three things we're actively looking for in the entrepreneur. When would you say was the last, like, wow moment you've had in the first meeting with an entrepreneur where you were like, this person really hits these three points? Honestly, it happens a lot. I mean, I, I, like, I, I mean, so if we make about 20 investments a year and we have three full-time partners, so on average, I end up making, you know, call it six to eight investments a year. Yeah. 
Um, so I don't always get to the finish line every single time I'm, I'm excited. Um, but it happens a lot. I mean, I, I, th- I think I could fairly say, you know, once or twice a month, somebody comes in here and after a first meeting, you know, I'm pretty excited and I think my partners would say the same. And then we've got a lot of work to do to figure out whether or not um, we should be investors. But uh, it, it does happen a lot. I mean, we like one of the phenomenal things, there are actually a lot of things about being a VC that are overglorified and, and probably not well appreciated by people who, um, you know, are interested in the field. But one of the great things about this field is we meet with extremely talented, um, exciting, inspiring people a lot, right? And I think that's, that, is, that is a very um, wonderful attribute of what we do. Yeah. Um, you're, you're actually quoted once as saying that being a VC is like taking a walk from Boston to San Francisco. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yeah. So part of, you know, so many people come to see me who are interested in being a venture capitalist. And I would certainly say as a job, it is a very, very privileged job. But I think a lot of people don't appreciate what it is about the job that is actually hard. Right. And so, you know, one part of it is the returns profile is very hard. You 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 um, learn the results of your decision making over very, very long periods of time. And most people don't do that well. So you could you could spend 10 years being a venture capitalist only to find out that, like, you really didn't do very well as a venture capitalist. So I think that's one hard part. The analogy on the walk to California is that. Um, you start the walk on this incredibly sunny. Brad Feld um, wrote this in a blog post after meeting with me and chatting with me about this, and mm-hmm. uh, and then and, and I read it and I wrote him and I was like, I can't believe you published that. And he he said because it's a little it is you know it does talk about the negative side of this and um, and I you know I try not to be uh, too dour about things and and I also feel very lucky to do what I do. And Brad Brad wrote back. I asked you permission. And I was like, Oh yeah, you probably did. And I probably said, sure. So um, Brad totally had every right to publish it. But so the idea is um, when you start out as a venture capitalist, it is like waking up on the most gorgeous day in Boston or New York. Um, You know, it's 73 degrees and sunny and uh, perfectly clear skies. (laughs) Exactly. And and you just, you're in no rush and just start walking. And you're meeting all these wonderful people along the way. And you're just like, I honestly can't believe that for a living – I get to walk to California. Like, this is remarkable, yeah. right? And then some months later, you're somewhere in, you know, Ohio, um, nothing wrong with Ohio, but, um, <laughs> you know, uh, walking by lots of strip malls yeah. and it's pouring yeah. and you have um, blisters on your feet and you're like, well, look, it's just walking. Like, this actually day-to-day, it's not hard. Yeah. You know, like, the day-to-day isn't hard, um, but California is really far. Yeah. And you have no idea what's there at the end, right? Are you going to love California? Are you going to hate California? Um, so it's like this endurance thing to find out what the outcome is. And then you, it occurs to you as you're walking and you're thinking, look, it's kind of miserable right now. Uh, and I've got these blisters and it's pouring. Um, that you don't know what was in California. Like, what were you, why, like, why were you walking there? And what, what are you trying to achieve? And so I think that's the sort of... Um, part of this industry people don't understand there is a real grind not every day is truly beautiful um and at the end result of the whole marath- ultra marathon of getting i don't know what getting in california is way more than an ultra marathon 
you may not achieve what you set out to achieve. Um, and so in a way, it's like the most fun of the finance industry, mm-hmm. but I don't think of myself as a financial professional. I don't, I, being an investor has never appealed to me as like, which sounds funny, I'm a venture capitalist, yeah. but I see myself much more as a advisor and supporter of founders than I really like to think of myself as an investor. I don't believe companies are born, I believe they're made. And what I mean by that is, um, I think a lot of people in my industry, because they see themselves as investors, think of themselves as stock pickers. Yeah. You know, and at least at the stage we invest, I don't think that's a thing. Like, I don't, I don't think you can be a stock picker, really. I think you've got to be willing to really try to get involved and help, again, with the same kind of intellectual honesty that you hope from the entrepreneur, but, but giving it back to them around the journey of the support they need, the thought process, um, how do you really build intellectual integrity around the asset that they're building? Because unfortunately, with a lot of the noise that's going on in our industry right now, there's a lot of sort of false companies being built. There's a lot of lack of intellectual honesty around what is a good company in the name of you know bowing down to the god of growth. And there are just a lot of bad companies that you know are in theory unicorns that are being utilized as examples to you know, uh, emerging entrepreneurs of what they should go build. And um, I think that's really unfortunate, but there's a lot of that going on right now. And so you gotta be a thought partner with the entrepreneur of, you know, if you're an up and coming VC, you could look at some of those companies and say, we're trying to be that. Like to the entrepreneur, you're not Adam Newman enough for me, right? You need to be more like we work. Yeah. Um, you're not leaning forward so far that you might fall, but. I don't care because I just want the crazy outcome um, instead of looking at really good examples of what it is to build a great company, being really thoughtful about building really high quality assets, um, really exceptional businesses that really can endure that are not um, houses of cards. And I, I think, you know, as we glorify the wrong entrepreneurs, um, as the venture industry only looks for binary um, lottery ticket type outcomes, yeah. We end up um, uh, modeling what is really not good um, visions of how to build or or pictures, sight lines of how to build companies for entrepreneurs. And so we can do a lot of damage on a board when we behave that way. Um, Or we can be very high value if we're asking the right questions and we're bringing really good intellectual honesty to that discussion. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think one thing I really appreciate about you is that you've also been an advocate for entrepreneurs to not always go for VC money. Like it's not always the right thing to get to be a, you know, a venture backed company. Can you speak more to kind of alternatives to these, to venture money? Yeah, I mean, I'm a venture capitalist, so I, I don't consider myself an expert on the alternatives. What I would say is too many people think raising venture capital is some form of validation of their business. Right. There is no validation in it whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Too many think, people think the money will solve their problems. It will scale their problems or it will scale their successes, mm-hmm. but it usually won't solve them. It will create some economics for experimentation, although I think people often experiment very poorly when they're enabled by too much money. Right. Um, and what we try to say is, Raise the money because of what you've proven mm-hmm. or validated mm-hmm. um, and the confidence you have about what you can do next, not the false confidence or hubris mm-hmm. or um, belief that somehow the money is truly the enabler. It's not. 
the, the money will um, magnify what it is you have, right? It will, it will um, make what you have the same in a way, but bigger. The problems will be bigger. Um, the, the successes will be bigger if, if you have a model that works. This is the crazy thing about our industry. Most business models don't really work. And the money is used to cover that up up until the moment where somebody goes, this is stupid. But somebody being a board member, or a lead investor, or, uh, whomever, right? But it, or Wall Street in the case of WeWork. Yeah. But up until the point where somebody goes, this isn't working, yeah. um, the money is used to cover it up. And partially because there's so much wishful thinking, it's usually only when a company's running out of money that somebody speaks up, largely because then they're being pre- they're they're feeling pressure around, do they want to write another check? And then all of a sudden the company isn't nearly as good as everyone was pretending it was. And I think it's one of the great misalignments of venture capital too is, you know, your VC is ta- like, you know, patting you on the back for growing like crazy up until the point where you're running out of money. And then they look really closely and go, you know, I, d- I don't know if I have the confidence to put another check into this. Right. And, and some of it is they're trying to be founder friendly throughout the whole thing. So being founder friendly to them means um, cheering you on, right? Not saying the hard truths. I, you know, I have another board where the VCs on the board have been very, very critical of the founder CEO, and the company's been around for a while. And the founder CEO um, has a CEO coach who wanted to do 360 feedback. So the CEO coach called all of the board members for feedback. I've been by far the least critical of the CEO and the most supportive. It was amazing when I got found out from the CEO that I was the only one who gave any form of critical feedback. Why? Because most VCs think founder-friendly is somehow not being critical instead of being intellectually honest and working with the CEO to solve those problems. So I was way more supportive but willing to speak up. They were way less supportive but patting, patting him on the back. I think that's not helpful. Um, but then that moment comes where you know, those people are asked for more money and they shake their head and they say, well, I, you know, I don't think this is a good one. It's like, well, that's funny. You never said that to the CEO the whole time. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that's, it's uh, very fair. Um, you spoke um, very eloquently about um, how one needs to build confidence before raising money, not raising money just to sort of like find that confidence. And I was curious what the key kind of metrics or key like uh, points of traction that you look for when understanding like whether there is confidence in the future of this business? So I think the right way to think about it is anytime you raise money and start spending it without confidence about what you'll achieve with that capital, you create extraordinary likelihood that the company fails. Mm-hmm. Right? And every time you raise capital with genuine confidence about what you'll be able to do with that capital because of what you've learned so far gives you uh, good insight into what will come next, um, you have a really great opportunity to increase value. Um, so what do I mean by that? Look, at the beginning of a company, most things are unknown. But a lot of entrepreneurs think having an idea means they should get capital. And I would say having an idea means you should go do a project. And that project is customer development. And largely, ideally, you would go do that project if you possibly can for some meaningful period of time on your own dime. And the reason why is because 
you want to build the confidence yourself that you want to be committed to this for a meaningful period of time. Like the biggest commitment that gets made in this entire venture startup game is the commitment of the entrepreneur to lead. And it may sound fun and exciting at the beginning, but believe me, leading something you don't believe in is a truly miserable, truly miserable experience. Um, And so you've got to make sure you want to go spend, you know, seven to 10 years of your life on this. And if you're going to do that, what you've got to do is build the confidence that you're really onto something. And the way you do that is by going and doing the project, right? Going and doing the customer development. So I always think like people, you watch Shark Tank and there's like idea and money. Ideas are massively overrated. People have ideas every day and do nothing with them. Almost every successful startup today has a precursor that is effectively the same idea. Um, Ideas are not value, right? The patent system, I think, greatly overstates, maybe in in biotech it's true, but greatly overstates the value of ideas. It's actually one of the reasons it's so incredibly flawed. Um, In between idea and company is a project. And that project might be three months. It's probably not three weeks. And it probably isn't three years. Um, But it could certainly be a year. That is your crusade, in a way, to actually make sure you really believe that this is something you want to spend the next, you know, seven to ten years of your life on. And it's a very personal quest. It's one of the reasons why I don't think really good operators who are not the founder should come ever come into a company um, ahead of product market fit because it, uh, to run the company because it isn't their crusade. It's somebody else's crusade. And it might not have a good answer at the end of it. Um, and I think that's the, that's the journey of the entrepreneur is to go do that work. Like for us, it was it would have been a shame if somebody had funded us to go do industrial inspection. We didn't have the confidence yet. It was the journey of figuring out that there really was this real opportunity in dentistry. Mm-hmm. And that we could potentially go after it and create a valuable company, which it became a valuable company. So um, that's the piece in between that I think a lot of people skip over too fast. But at the end of that, you probably don't have revenue. I mean, sometimes it depends what you're doing. You probably don't really have very many customers. But what you have is confidence that this is something you really believe in and want to spend seven to ten. Ideally, believe in way more than the threshold a VC would need to write a check. Right, like I find it very surprising sometimes when I start doing diligence on a project, on a company, and the founders haven't done that, that diligence yet. They should have done the diligence, right? Like they should be able to say, "Oh, you want to learn about X, Y, and Z? Talk to this person. You want to learn about this other piece of it? Go talk to this person." Like mm-hmm. I did all that work, so let me lay out the path for you. But it is very interesting, like from you know, with some frequency, when I start doing that work. It's almost as if my threshold for being an investor in the company was somehow higher than the founder's threshold for deciding to spend the next seven to 10 years of their life on this, even though it's only going to be one of six to eight companies I invest in that year, right? And they're going to do one company for the next seven to 10 years. So I think that there's almost like an under-seriousness or a lack of seriousness, in my view, of people thinking through that part of the process, that being the biggest commitment. Um, But I think when you come out of that with confidence, then the question is, what capital do you really need to start doing some really interesting experimentation? Probably you've already done a little bit in certain ways. And now what's next? Like, what's the experimentation next that would really show that this is working? Um, 
And that's the capital you should raise because it's the most dilutive capital you're ever going to raise. So you don't want to raise tons of money right then. You want to raise the right amount of money right then. Um, And you don't want to be overcapitalized to go do that next piece. You want to be appropriately capitalized because at the end of the day, you're just experimenting. But then the key thing is if you're experiment, but you got to buy time. Like that's the other thing people don't understand. Your burn rate costs you time. So the question is, had, I mean, you're going to burn something. You're investing in your business now. You've raised some money, and, and you're, you're, you want to, you know, you want to make some investments. But how do you make the experiments inexpensive enough that you buy yourself enough time to experiment enough? And the really sort of confusing thing about that for most people is, people think more money is usually more experimentation, and it usually goes the other way. More money usually ends up being less experimentation. It's so counterintuitive, and the reason is. Very few entrepreneurs treat more money truly as more time. Mm. They treat more money as more allowance mm. to make to expend resources. But if you're expending resources towards something that ultimately isn't the right thing, you then have a higher sort of ongoing burn rate that needs to be sustained, um, and all the money's wasted. So, you know, if you spend um, hundred thousand dollars a month for two years, so that's two point four million dollars. Figuring out that you needed to pivot, could you have figured that out on $400,000 and frankly still have the other $2 million in the bank for the next thing you're doing? And I I just think people, it it is human nature to start wanting to go faster before you've proven anything. And we have a mantra here, which is go slow to go fast. Mm. You can always hit the gas when something works. The problem is most things don't work. And so people start feeling pressure to hit the gas long before they validated something works. And then it's catastrophic because they don't know how to turn it off. Yeah, I, I love that, that's awesome. Um, and just one one thing though, um, with like consumer businesses, I think like cracking culture and building habits really hard. And that's something that's quite hard to build confidence in. Um, and I'm curious what your view is on kind of very consumer internet focused founders. Um, kind of getting to that healthy state of like high terminal retention is difficult and takes time. So at what point do you, as a founder, build enough confidence in your business that you're going to potentially crack culture? Um, you mean like cultural, like broad-based cultural perspective on what you're doing? Like, like um, you know, the, there's a constituency that actually culturally believes in you or do you mean more like the culture of the team that's going after this? More, more the first. Yeah, and do you also, when you say consumer, when we say consumer here, we mean anything that the customer is a consumer, right? Think more social. Like. Yeah, so you mean specifically social, not, yeah. not so much e-commerce. So I guess what I would say relative to um, things we've been, we've, by the way, had lots of things we've done that are social that really have not worked out. So I would say our track record is worse than it is better, right? Like we've we've... Um, we have not done extremely well. And I think while some of the very best companies of our time are social oriented, um, very, very few social startups actually work out in any meaningful way. So you need a founder that understands some real insight about cultural behavior. And then usually it is critical that there be some natural network effect um, in the business. Because if there isn't a network effect, you have this huge problem of some meaningful cost of acquisition without any early economic to economic factor 
to um, offset uh, that cost. And, and so it's, it's so the company can't. So uh, let me give you a, a, a funny example. Let, let's think of Uber for a moment, not as an e-commerce company. Let's imagine it purely as a social phenomenon. Yeah. Maybe they would have been ad supported in the vehicle, and it really is just about getting people to give rides to other people in a social format um, with no transactional value to it. Um, think about to get where they are today, how much more money they would have needed to acquire drivers and acquire passengers if there was no on-ramping network effect to it, right? So if their cost of acquisition didn't go down, but there was no money made whatsoever, and how much capital you would have um, not only needed, but how difficult it would have been to attract that $100 billion in capital or whatever it would have cost um, without any sort of uh, visibility into what the economic payoff might actually be one day. So going back, uh, now Uber luckily had a transactional business. They could actually show enormous economic growth. But Facebook didn't for a very long period of time, right? And I think without some network effect that actually allows you to demonstrate your growth without having to make extraordinary cost uh, investments in acquisition. So, you know, the, the good investments, and I obviously YouTube, where, where you previously worked, um, struggled a lot at the cost, the server costs and all of that at a time where people did not understand these kinds of businesses yeah. nearly as well as they did today. But those costs are actually much more um, easy to economically understand or appreciate, which is there's a phenomenon happening here mm -hmm. that's explosive and growing really, really fast. And um, servicing the phenomenon from the standpoint of bandwidth mm -hmm. and server support um, on the premise that at some point it's monetizable, yeah. I think that's an economic argument that's actually reasonably easy to understand mm -hmm. if the growth of the phenomenon is the thing that inspires that investment. Well, I think it's so much harder. Well, so I think what you're starting with is not scale, mm -hmm. but it's um, some meaningful factor of demonstrating that there is a true network effect. Mm -hmm. And then you can start to imagine. So, you know, Peter Thiel's investment in Facebook might actually be the single best venture investment of all time. Wow. Yeah. But people forget that at the time he invested, and I don't have the exact number, there were something like 500,000 people using Facebook. Yeah. It's a pretty big number, right? Now, it's not you know, the billions today and, or the, you know, the hundreds of millions that would come soon or tens of millions. But, but you could, if you, most people were close-minded to it. Most people didn't understand those kinds of businesses then. Mark Zuckerberg was told no by many investors. So I, I don't want to diminish how um, special that investment was. But if you were open-minded enough to take a close look at what was happening and how quickly they got to half a million um, users and how inexpensively they got to half a million users, it wasn't an extraordinary leap of faith to say there is some really powerful network effect happening here. Now, you know, will it expand past colleges? Will it? Those are fair questions and good reasons to... Um, you know, be unsure. But but you could look at that and go, look, there's a really interesting thing to invest in here, right? And the cost of supporting it was relatively slow, small, sorry. The cost of support was relatively small. Yeah. YouTube had bigger challenges um, relative to the speed of its natural growth. So I think the question is like, what can you start to demonstrate is happening organically if you're really working on something social? Yeah. 
And I think, you know, we have seen over time, we've been wrong and other people have been wrong. But when you start to see these organic phenomenon happening, there are people who are interested in, in investing in that. Yeah, agreed. And I know we're approaching the end of our time together. So like very last um, rapid fire round, one answer or like one sentence answers. Yeah, um, I'm really bad at are. that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the first one is, if you had unlimited money and time, what problem would you solve? You know, I, I, um, rapid fire so hard. I, I would either go after clean water or just f- feeding everybody or, I mean, mostly poverty-oriented, global poverty-oriented problems. Okay. Um, three dream guests at a dinner. It's really, really tough. I, you know, I really would have loved to meet my grandfather who passed away uh, before I was born. I, my grandmother married an extraordinary man who was an incredible grandfather for me. So I had a wonderful grandfather, but I would have loved to meet my biological grandfather. So I think I'd invite him to dinner. Um, I'd really love to have a conversation with Barack Obama about what's going on right now. I'm finding him incredibly quiet. Um, but would love to understand his view of America at this moment. So maybe I'd invite him to dinner. Um, and uh, I don't know, someone, um, you know, may- maybe Einstein or someone whose genius would would um, uh, bring a completely different element to the discussion. So so that's pretty random. But my, my biological grandfather, who I never met, Barack Obama and Albert Einstein would be a pretty fun uh, dinner conversation, I think. Yeah, for sure. And, and last question. You're the commencement speaker at HBS. What's the main takeaway from your speech? Integrity. I, I think at the end of the day, um, people think of these things as black and white, very binary. Are you honest or dishonest? Um, integrity is about a level of intellectual honesty that goes a lot deeper than just this binary, right? It is, it is a... Um, lifelong pursuit of trying to truly be open-minded, incredibly thoughtful, and really, really fair. And I think a lot of people are very successful not pursuing those things, but but I wish they weren't. And I, th- I think at the end of the day, when you really pursue those things in a very real integrity, in a very serious way, um, you create the most good uh, and the biggest impact. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being with us. A pleasure.